Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, as we continue our study in this uh, difficult yet profound book that addresses so many different topics that are so relevant for the world in which we live today. Today we're going to address out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the search for justice how appropriate in a culture seemingly consumed with justice, and seemingly is the important word, that we can get some clarity from the Scripture and the Koheleth, the convener of the assembly, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, this philosopher, pundit, teacher, professor, was going to spell out things and I believe crystal clear language for us. And I think it's important that as we prepare ourselves for worship and sing, that, that you take note of the words that we sing. Holy, holy, holy. One of the phrases that strikes me and is powerful is the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God where He whispers and evil trembles. Are you thankful for that? As we reflect upon the holiness of God, it's where our hope comes from. It's where our promises come from. It's where we go to cling to truth when truth seems to be so absent and irrelevant in the culture in which we live. And today, unfortunately, we're going to tie some of the, the author's comments to the culture of the day and point out some of the, the bad and dreadful things happening in an ever-increasing darkening world, but give you some perspective. And I truly believe that that's what Ecclesiastes is about, to grant us a perspective and to work through the issues of if there is no God and there is no truth, then what? And as he spells out the consequences for the emptiness of that pursuit, He offers an alternative, and he'll do so in the text this morning. Now, remember, our understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes is predicated on some pretty critical matters, and those critical matters have reasoning behind them. I've suggested to you, not original to me, that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is sorting out the reality of life lived under the sun, the days of our lives, and the pursuit of making sense out of everything, of moving through what we perhaps could call an identity crisis. Who am I, and where am I going, and what is life really all about? The difficult thing in Ecclesiastes is he, he plays different roles even in the same text, jumping back and forth. Sometimes he appears as, as the cynic, the pessimist. Life was just crazy. It makes no sense live and die, it doesn't matter. It's pointless. But that's not, in my opinion, the reason that he writes. At other times, he he writes as the hedonist. And today, we're going to be reminded again that he's writing in that way. So just enjoy today. Make the most of, of every opportunity. Carpe diem, seize the day, have a blast. We don't know what's going to come tomorrow. But that's rather depressing in the greater context of life. I truly believe that the Holy Spirit uses this text in an apologetic kind of fashion and teaches us that if you subtract God from the realities of life even under the sun, 
Here is what you get for that exchange. And there's an emptiness and a vanity to what you receive by cutting God out of the picture. But if God is in the picture, you are able then to tolerate or to live under the sun all the days of your life, believing in some sense that a better day is coming. Now, our interpretation of this text is built on some critically important passages of Scripture. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the writer says, I became great and surpassed all that were before me in Jerusalem. And then he says, and also my wisdom remained with me. So in this pursuit under the sun, he never lost sight or touch with this God-given ability to sort out matters, to, to make sense of, of, of what really matters most. But when he dealt with life under the sun, without God or this perspective of, I make the most of my life, he considers all that his hands had done and the toil that he had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Without God, none of this makes any sense. Now remember, his wisdom remained with him. And in the context of that wisdom, he tells us at the end of the book, which is critically important when you interpret the rest of the book, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Here's what he says. Fear God, and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then he says something haunting to all of us. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, as he pursues this search of justice and he maintains his sense of wisdom, He is looking at life under the sun, first from a perspective that is under the sun, and then coming to conclusions about the emptiness of that and providing something new and different. But I want you to be encouraged, at least, in this pursuit of justice, the words that he pens in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Now, that's critically important for our perspective this morning, because some of you have convinced yourself that this is the worst of worst lives possible. We have it so much worse than anybody else. Nobody knows our sorrows and and woes. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go eat worms. And Solomon says, stop it. Stop it. These things have happened in the past. There's just no remembrance of these former things. That happens to me every once in a while when I watch the news. No remembrance of the former things. I lose my sense of perspective, and I say, how can this be? And I fail to rest in the fact that only a holy God can sort it out and give me this undying belief that everything is going to be okay. The crooked will be made straight, and the wrong will be corrected because God is sovereign. So we come to this text. We started it last week in chapter 3 when, in verse 1, he says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the heaven. He goes through a set of 14 different issues 
and looks at the completeness of life and makes it very clear that there are seasons in life that are ordained by God, and for every matter under the heaven, God is sovereign. Now, that creates some real difficulties for us, and we're going to start with those difficulties and then delve a little bit into this matter of justice. And I encourage you to come next week because we'll finish this search for justice in chapter 4 all the way through to its completion and address some of the very matters that we seem to have no former remembrance of today. And I think thereby, if we are reminded, we can take comfort even in an ever-increasing, darkening world. I hope and pray to that end. Pray with me, please. Father, give us perspective. Grant us hope. Show us Your glory. And even when we're undone, remind us of what You've done for us. Help us to fear before You, knowing that You appoint the end from the beginning and all things in between. Help us to understand that that sovereignty and and divine control over all matters of life aren't a straitjacket that robs us of any kind of decision-making, but a security blanket when everything seems to be going sideways, a place of comfort and solace, a place where we can be assured that, that you are not deaf, you are not sleeping or slumbering, you know what is happening. And even at your whisper, darkness trembles. And this culture that speaks so much of justice, the dreadful conclusions about justice have carved out and cut out and eliminated any need for God. Remind us that that is a dead-end road, and there is no justice without God. So, encourage us and challenge us and help us to think biblical, and in every other way, may you be glorified in the perspective that we have in life, even when we, just like the writer, cycle through these different moods and stances of being cynical and pessimistic, selfish and hedonistic, What's to grasp the meaning and reality of Ecclesiastes and to gain some perspective on life that is so needed and necessary today, and may you receive all of the glory as we pray to the only wise God, holy, 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 in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. We get done with chapter 3 and these 14 different contrasts. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us then that in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful and it's time. Everything that happens in the seasons of life, every incident and event in life is complete. It is beautiful. It is purposeful. It is just as God intended it to be. But immediately that brings up so many questions in the Christian community when we go through very difficult and trying times, and we say, well, how can this be beautiful? Does God not know what I am going through? Doesn't He understand the things that I'm facing in my life today? Why would God permit such an evil? 
The question of evil is the number one charge, the number one argument against biblical theism, a theism that teaches that God is good all of the time. Well, if that is true, what do you do with the problem of evil? And I would suggest that the atheist has the same issue. How can there be evil if there are no rules? How can there be evil if there is no absolute morality? How can there be evil if there is no necessary good? They can't answer the question either. But most of the arguments of evil have nothing to do with the philosophical, theological arguments. It has to do with the emotional side of it. Pastor Jim, if God is so good, then why am I going through this? I wish I knew. But I don't. But I know someone who does. He doesn't waste a single hurt. He doesn't waste a single opportunity. He doesn't waste anything in life. He's in charge. He allows things to happen. He brings things to pass. It is within his time. It is within his season. Circumstances are utterly and ultimately determined by Him, the sovereign of the universe. And there's rest in that. There's hope in that. You say, well, doesn't this rob us of our free will? And what about the consequences for sin if God is appointing everything? Well, it gets a little bit deep here, but for those who are wrestling with the wise and, and separating what God is doing from good and, and bad, there are a couple of different aspects of God's will or decree. There is an efficient or efficacious aspect that says God is intentional and He's making this happen. He is the force behind this. The incarnation would be one of those things. The atonement would be one of those things. God is doing this actively and involved in this. There's a permissive side to His will and decree as well. He allows things to happen. I suspect that's what struggles or most of us struggle with the most. Why does God allow these things? And sometimes it's consequence. Sometimes it is a result of your own decisions and and your own behaviors, and He is still sovereign even though you have made decisions that have caused consequences in your life. Well, the inevitable question of that, of course, is, well, then why am I suffering the consequences when other people get away with it? Did you ever wonder about that? Psalm writer did too. Why do the heathen rage? How come they get away with this, God? What is the deal? I thought you were sovereign. The writer's wrestling with some of those things. He's wrestling with the reality of our behaviors, bringing consequences and the permissive aspect of, of God's decree. He's wondering why, in fact, this is an instant and in his timing, it's like he's not learned anything that he's written so far in the book. He goes back to the same arguments over and over again. Most of us struggle with the reality of the sanctity of personal responsibility and the challenge of divine sovereignty. We want to know, in spite of our responsibility, why is God doing what He's doing? Good luck on that. Here's what I would suggest to you. Why don't you take care of your stuff and rest in the reality that for everything there is a season and a time for every manner under the heaven. 
and God is the one who determines that. Isn't there comfort in that? I believe that there is. I believe there's great comfort in that, but it doesn't answer all the questions of life, and such as the culture in which we live today. I'm reminded of the response to the sovereignty of God that is so clear by Paul as he writes to the church at Rome, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Does God owe you something? Is that what you're trying to convince yourself? And from him and through him and to him are all things. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under the heaven. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is always good even when the days are evil. So we learn, we celebrate His goodness, and we bask in His blessings, and we're grateful for the things today, understanding that tomorrow is sufficient for the evil therein. I can't control tomorrow, but I can live today by counting my blessings and rehearsing God's glory and knowing that everything's going to be okay. So as the Kohalath cogitates all of these things, he comes to another issue, if you would, and the issue that he comes to is found in verse 16. Moreover, furthermore, in light of all of this, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work, reflecting about what he said in verse 1. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. It reminds me of R.C. Sproul speaking of the holiness of God and looking at humanity in light of that holiness as creatures from the dirt. God took the dust of the ground and created us for His glory. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. What is the end of death? What comes next? Who even can know that for sure? So I saw there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The writer now delves into the reality that if indeed we are in a place where we can be thankful for every day and the blessings of that day find joy even in the simple things in life, find joy, this is great, even when we're toiling. Isn't that most of life? 
as we're toiling, there's still a place that we can find joy through all of our life because God has blessed us with that reality, finding the balance in all of that. Now He tackles the most difficult issue in light of the sovereignty of God, and that is the matter of wickedness and justice. Brief few verses, he tries to sort it out. He, he takes it up again and, and what we have in our Scripture as chapter 4. But I want you to understand that the justice that he is referring to and speaking to is so radically different than the justice today. We did a lengthy series about a year and a half ago, maybe a year. Time flies when, when you're having fun. It flies when you're not, in fact. But, but nonetheless, we, we did it on ideological social justice. And we defined ideological social justice as the belief that evil and injustice are the product of dominant groups who create systems and structures which marginalize others and promote their own interests. In other words, ideological social justice in the culture today says that there are some who abuse and the rest are those who have been abused. There are some who oppress, the rest are suffering oppression. And in this black and white equation of equivalency, they turn this belief into something where they dehumanize all people, and the dominant group then becomes suspect. The dominant group, whoever's in charge, whoever's in power, then becomes the scapegoat. Interestingly enough, the context of this experiment called the United States of America, that dominant group was those who professed or embraced a Judeo-Christian ethos and ethic. And isn't it amazing that as God is cut out of the culture, they begin to hone in on, they begin to focus in on, they're getting closer to the target. And what is the target of all evil today? Christianity. If we could just deal with these Christians get rid of this notion of God, get rid of their morality, then everything's going to be okay. Well, how is that working out for them? Not so good. In fact, ideological social justice denies anything that has to do with the sanctity of personal responsibility. People should never be held accountable for their personal choices. They're only acting that way because someone has oppressed them. Someone has treated them wrong. Somebody did something to them. Do you see how this is just a constant theme? The same theme exists in the church today. Somebody else is always to blame because we don't like personal responsibility. And if, in fact, you hold someone accountable, you will always be accused of blaming the victim. You see how that happens in the culture? Oh, you're just blaming the victim. No, you did this. I just happened to point it out. You are oppressing me. See, that I did this is really irrelevant in the culture. That's what happens in ideological social justice where there is no God. By the way, it also happens when there is no standard of measurement when it comes to truth, right, and wrong. In fact, David Allen Scott in Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice opines that unless justice is founded upon a transcendent, objective basis of righteousness, it necessarily will be founded on a man-made morality imposed by whoever holds the power. There is nothing new under the sun. The writer is struggling with the very same thing. 
He's looking at life and he's saying, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice and the place of what is right, there's wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, this, this court of law, the culture at large, even there, there was wickedness. There are people oppressing other people. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is time for every matter and for every work. Let's make this very clear before we move any further. Biblical Christianity and ideological social justice are incompatible worldviews. There must be an absolute righteous standard that is transcendent. It is for all people of all times in all cultures forever and ever, and it is rooted in the holiness of God. There has to be an absolute standard. But for ideological social justice, it is a moving target, and there is no absolute standard. Or the absolute standard is whatever the people in power say, and that is the culture that we live in today. Never before in the history of the world has the church been persecuted like this. Did you miss what we said in our introduction? There's nothing new under the sun. Things just kind of cycle around. Everybody's been through this in one way or another. Don't you think Paul knew this about Rome? He described it for us in the Scripture. In the latter times, there will be lawlessness. White becomes black, and black becomes white, and up becomes down, and down becomes up. And we say, why has this happened? Because there's no transcendent objective basis of righteousness. To put it into context in Ecclesiastes, he's trying to sort out life under the sun apart from God, and there are no answers because you can't do it apart from God. There has to be an absolute standard. They are diametrically opposed on matters of epistemology, human nature, and identity, morality, and authority. Ideological social justice is incoherent, and without God, there will be no justice. That's the reality. Does it mean we don't pursue it? Does it mean it doesn't matter? Does it mean we ought not to be concerned about it? We're going to find out next week we ought to be concerned about it. We should see every individual that we come across as intrinsically made in the image of God, possessing worth and value and dignity outside of their race or their, their sex or their gender or any other matter. They're child of God. They're created in His image, and therefore they matter. And if you start treating people that way, then there will be some justice that comes back to this world. But that means we've got to reintroduce God into the culture. But when you reintroduce God into the culture, the gods that be must relinquish their throne, and that's just not going to happen. Solomon said, yeah, been there, done that too. I've seen that before. It's going to come around again. Welcome to 2022. Furthermore, verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun, remember, outside of God, only in this temporal existence, that in the place of justice, in this court of law, there is injustice. There's wickedness. Boy, isn't that the reality in major metropolitan areas today? 
where criminals are released from violent crime. Why? Ideological social justice is not their fault. The system has oppressed them. The system has abused them. How do you expect them to act? They are victims in all of this. But what about the people that they harm when they're released? Solomon says, this is crazy. In the place of justice, in the court of law, when this makes perfect sense, why is there such wickedness? Why do we turn a blind eye to all of this? And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Why is there oppression? Why is this happening? What you might not know is the time of the writing, if this is Solomon, and I believe that probably we can conclude with a, with a reasonable amount of belief that it was the king and ancient Israel was ultimately responsible for justice. What you might not know is if you read in the history of the kings in First Kings chapter 11, even Solomon kind of lost his way when it came to justice, turning a blind eye to certain things. Is he lamenting that? I'm not sure what, what he's doing, but he's simply saying, listen, where things should be black and white, they're not black and white any longer. And where righteousness should be rewarded and awarded, it seems like we're awarding and rewarding evil. What is the deal with all of that? Just doesn't make any sense to me. And then he says, as he reflects upon the discovery in verse 16, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, remember, he goes back and he captures the language that he uses in chapter 3, verse 1. There is a season and a time for every matter under the heaven. And he says, there is a time, a perfect time, where God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Seems like in a moment of lucidity at least, he looks at the suppression and all of his confusion under the sun, and he says, the only comfort that I can take is that, that God's going to sort all of this out someday. At least I'm hoping that that's going to be the case. A little bit later on, perhaps he, he shares a little doubt. I'm, I'm not sure if that's going to happen or when it's going to happen or how that's going to happen. Some would even believe as they interpret this text that the writer is giving up all hope that it's going to happen in this lifetime under the sun. Solomon is saying, I'm holding out for righteousness to win, but in this sinful world, it's never going to win in my lifetime. Perhaps he's looking towards the future, saying that God will sort it out someday for His glory. I want you to know that God will set things right, and you will get what you deserve, but that might not happen today. In fact, we're living in an age that it probably won't happen. And we say, this is so unfair. How could this be? How could God be doing this to us? And again, he says, there's nothing new under the sun. Same old, same old. Quit your belly aching. Everybody goes through this. We live in a sinful world. Someday, someday, I hope that this will be addressed. By hope, doesn't appear that he has a confident expectation necessarily, but he believes that the crooked will be made straight. Maybe not in this lifetime, but will that will happen. If indeed 
God will judge the righteous and the wicked. That is, in one sense, very comforting to us, isn't it? God's, God's going to fix all this. He's going to deal with all of this someday. And, and there's a, a special comfort that comes from that, knowing that ideological social justice will never solve this, and righteousness will always be replaced by wickedness, even though it makes no sense. There is a comfort in knowing that God's going to sort it out someday, and everyone's going to answer. Here's the problem. When we live under the sun and only look at our temporal existence, we want it to happen right now. Not tomorrow. Not in the next generation. I want it now, God. This is just not fair. That's the other side. That's the other side of judgment. God is going to judge both the righteous and the wicked. And that brings comfort, but that also brings a grave, serious challenge to every one of our lives. Because that judgment isn't just the wicked. He says in the text, it's the judgment of the righteous too. In fact, he said in chapter 12 when we began here, every deed, every deed will be assessed and rewarded. Some of us sit here, boy, they're going to get what they need. Boy, they're going to get what they deserve. Man, God's going to, whoa, slow the boat down here. So are you. So are you. God always does what's right. And you're not going to be on the other end where God says, yeah, I know you had a hard life, and, and I know things were tough, and it really wasn't true. No, God doesn't work that way. He's going to judge both the righteous and the wicked. So he says in the next verse, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts, driven by their own appetites and desires, but even more so, what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. And they all have the same breath or life and man has no advantage over the beast, and that is all vanity. The Koheleth now turns his attention to looking into the face of his own mortality. He says, we're all going to die, just as the beasts of the field die, I'm going to die. God has imparted this life to the beast, and God has imparted this life to humankind, but in the end, the same fate comes and crashes all of those individuals, and everyone dies. And as one dies, so dies the other. This is all vanity. What is the justice in that? What is the justice in that? In the end, we're all dead anyhow. In essence, he says, humans have no advantage over the, the animals. We're, we're all going to die. I find it fascinating and alarming all at the same time that we continue to fuel the fears of the COVID crisis and, and the fear that every human being has in facing their own mortality. Something's going to get you, and we're all going to die. We all need to be reminded that He will judge both the righteous and 
the wicked. Well, great. Let's just close up shop. What a pleasant message, Pastor Jim. Appreciate that this morning. You will never see the glory of the king without seeing your own mortality and wickedness. It's never going to happen. In fact, mortality has a way of inciting certain behaviors in us. Accountability has a way of reminding us, I better be careful, I'm going to answer for this someday. This whole notion of judgment isn't, go get them, God, it's, He's going to look at me too. And that ought to change things. It ought to also remind us that every action in our life has meaning and weight. Everything that we do will come under judgment of God. That knife cuts both ways. And it gives us hope that in the place of wickedness, righteousness will again reign. But that will never become a reality in our minds or our behaviors until we realize that just like the animals, we're all going to die. We have no advantage over them. And if someone can use the fear of death in our lives to control us, these oppressors certainly will. Isn't that our culture today? It is the next fear, and it's the next fear, and it's the next fear. So do what we tell you, and do what we say, and do it when we say, because you're going to die. And they don't understand Christians. Say, we're all going to die. It's appointed unto man wants to die, but after that, the judgment. We come down in the place of Job. Though he slay me, shall I not trust him? Doesn't he have this in his hands too? And all of this, Job did not sin against God. Shall we accept good from God and not evil? Death is not the enemy of the believer. Death is a natural process of life, and it's going to get all of us, just like it does the animals. It's not death that we fear. It's the consequence of sin. And here's the good news. God has taken care of that through Jesus Christ our Lord. And He has separated your sin so far as the east is from the west, and He has no more remembrance of it. It's taken care of. Why do we need to be afraid? It doesn't mean we're not going to be a judge. Every idle word is going to be called into account, and that ought to motivate us as well. In the reality of all of this, even though we die, there is something that we can hang on to, something that we can cling to, but it almost seems like the, the writer, the Kyleth, is saying, I, I believe this is the case, but I'm really not sure. He says, verse 20, I'll go to one place. All are from the dust into dust, all return, seemingly reflecting much of the the common wisdom of the day, a a wisdom that is entrenched in what we would once call paganism or that which is of the earth. And I believe that we are living in a great pagan age in our culture today. For if there is no God, everything must be temporal. Everything must be the here and now. So this is what Paul points out in Romans chapter 1. Without God, we begin to worship the creature rather than the Creator. 
And there are no rules, so we live life on our terms and do whatever we want because there is no consequence to that. We are living in a pagan age today where we can kill babies but not dolphins. And I'm not advocating that we kill dolphins, but man is created in the image of God. That's lunacy. That's lunacy. Are you kidding me? Follow the science. Yeah, why don't we do that for a second? The viability of a child and the science has made it very clear. There's life in this child in the womb at a very early, early stage, and God is the author of life, and only He has the right to take it away. How dare you? See, we wrestle through all of these things, and, and look at what's happening. The paganism that dominates our culture must be rejected. We must look at life above the sun, not under the sun. We must remember that we are creatures of the dirt, but created in the image of God for a purpose, a greater purpose than this lifetime. And this God is a God of justice, so justice will happen. But stop it, demanding that it happens on your time. It'll happen on His time. Why? Because for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the heaven. When God is done, He's done. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will never fix justice. We can fix our behavior. We'll talk about it next week. But justice does not come by sinful man. It only comes when God is allowed to interject Himself into our culture. But when you look at your life under the sun without God, this is what you get. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. What's the point? What is the point? Verse 21, so even though God will judge both the righteous and the wicked, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes, goes down to, to the earth. Can I know that for sure? How do I know that for sure? I need to know it for sure in this lifetime. He's saying you won't. There are certain mysteries that will not be revealed to you, but you can know that there's a judgment coming. So I saw that there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work for this this is a lot. As you look into the face of your own mortality and realize there is a day in which the breath will be taken from you, and you will die, and your spirit will be accountable to this God who will judge both the wicked and the just, and in His judgment there will be an eternal destiny. You must rest in that even though questions abound. In your own personal life, why God? In our culture, why God? In our world, why God? How, how come we don't do anything about this? No, we, we rest. And when we rest, we see that there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in that. I was just thinking of even myself. We've had a long stretch, at least where I live. Storms are spotty. It hasn't rained and everything's shriveling up and dying. And I'm like, 
Lord, we need some rain. What, what's the deal here? Every other year of my life, it's been I live in Binghamton. Please, some sunshine, Lord. Aren't you just like me? No? We want what we want what we want it. Instead of enjoying what we have and leaving to God what is only God's business, He will determine the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And He will bring recompense. And there is an eternal destiny. And what is broken today will be finally fixed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you can't change that. So just enjoy today. And count your blessings. And realize that God is good. For who can bring Him to see what will be after Him? What business is it of yours to know what comes after you? Who has known the mind of the Lord and who is giving Him counsel? Boy, we love to do that, don't we? Here's what you need to do, God. Who, who do you think you are? You, you let God handle that. Take pleasure in your life. When you ask this, yourself the question, do the righteous and the real, wicked really get what they deserve? You must rest in the fact that they do. And ultimately, that is in the hands of God, and there's not a single thing that we can do about that. But we can live every day of our life with this reality. All will have their day before the judge. When it comes to oppression and injustice, that's comforting. When it comes to me looking in the mirror, that's a big challenge. You mean I'm going to stand before the judge? Yeah, he's going to judge things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Doesn't give you a little shudder? So much for the cheering. Go get him, God. Go get those evildoers. No, we're all going to have our place before the judge. So be thankful today. Know that your life matters. Realize that your present actions have meaning and weight and eternal purposes for the glory of God. I do not believe that the writer is coming to some ambivalent conclusion where he says, so whatever, it doesn't matter. We can't know for sure. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think that what he's trying to make clear to all of us is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that is the only answer to injustice. That's the only thing we have. Because as long as we're here in this sinful world, there will be injustice. And when we try to fix that without God, there will be greater injustice. And you just flip the script, and somebody's always oppressed. But God is biding His time, and He is going to do something about this, and everyone will have their day before the judge. May you find comfort. May you be challenged. And may we learn to fear God and keep His commandments. Because that's really what life is all about. Great, great wisdom. And the Koheleth, the author of Ecclesiastes.
doesn't fix what's broken, but it gives us a notion that someday it will be. And for today, that has to be enough. To God be the glory. Father, thank You for the truth of Scripture, for the reality of Your Word, for the hope and the promise even of the perspective of Koheleth, the writer of Ecclesiastes. Such a difficult book, I trust that we're doing our due diligence and understanding it the way that it's written. Give us wisdom to know the difference between the cynic and the hedonist and the apologist. Remind us all of the things that matter most in this world because of the fallenness of man and the rejection of God. We will return to paganism. We will act like the mere beasts of the field pursuing our own appetites, and it will create injustice, horrible, horrible injustice in our worlds. When that happens, show us your glory. Allow us to unravel. Teach us to sing holy, holy, holy. And wait for the day that you make all things new. May we find our comfort in that. May our hearts be filled with thanksgiving for the good things that you blessed us with today for your glory alone. As we understand that there's a time and a season for everything under the heaven. Bring comfort and challenge, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to close our service out by singing the